If you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, we're continuing in our study of the life of David. My title this morning is, Who is Able to Stand Before the Lord? Um, I want to begin by reading a section of uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, one of my favorite books, one that you should read, one that you should read to your children, and it is the great allegory of Christ um, that C.S. Lewis penned with Aslan the Great Lion. And this is when Susan, one of the three daughters of Eve, is going to meet Aslan the Great Lion while they're in Narnia as they went through the wardrobe. And here is the story with the, the scene with Susan and Mr. Beaver. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is the lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that is the story of what David is about to come face to face with here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's turn there, and I'll read the text to us. It says there that David again, 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, who is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyrics and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nason, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God 
and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord on that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So this morning, I want to break this into three parts as we look at this text and ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord? And so the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 5 is is the need of God's presence. The need of God's presence. This is what going to get the ark is all about. This is an, an incredible undertaking of historical importance. If you look there in verses 1 through 5, it seems that when David was pursuing the Philistines back at the end of chapter 5, all the way from Geba to Gezer, that someone in David's company remembered that the ark of God was nearby. Baal Judah, also known as Kiriath-Jerim, was located nine miles west of Jerusalem, which was roughly halfway between Geba and Gezer. So David gathers a huge fighting force, 30,000 chosen men. And then the number grows as the text says that David arose with, verse 5, with all the people who were with him. And then it says there that all of the house of Israel was involved. This is a huge undertaking. And you might be asking, why is, why is this such a big deal? What is the ark anyway? What is this really about? The ark had been made by Moses. So the ark is this piece of furniture. It had been made by Moses and built to God's specifications. It was a wooden box covered in gold that was roughly four feet long, roughly, two feet wide and two feet tall. It's not a very big box. It had rings through which poles would be inserted in order for it to be carried. There was a gold cherub on each end of the, of the top that overlooked what is called the mercy seat. And inside this ark were the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. And those Ten Commandments began with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. The ark was the most important artifact to the Israelites because of what it represented. I'm going to give you five things it represented really quickly. Number one, it represented God's covenant relationship to his people. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's because the covenant was literally kept inside this ark. Second, the ark was important because it carried God's name before his people. If you look there in verse 2... Um, If you look there in verse 2 and back in 1 Samuel 4, it's called this. It says, it is the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. So it literally carried God's name before his people as they came into the land of Israel from the conquest and from the exodus. 
Third, it represents God's rule on earth. It is God's footstool. It says in both texts, again, first, uh, 2 Samuel 6, 1 Samuel 4, it says that God sits, look at the text, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is God's footstool. He is enthroned above it. God is king on his throne, and the ark is his footstool. And fourth, the ark represents God's mercy and salvation. If you were to study the rest of, of Israel, they, were, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, and the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. There would be no salvation without this, that, that this was the representative of, of this is where God's mercy and the transaction of the sins of God's people being removed happened at the Ark of the Covenant. And finally, the ark represents God's presence among his people. That's what's important to our text. It is a symbol of God's presence and blessing and covenant. God's presence among his people, remember, was lost in the garden. And then God instructs God's people to build the ark. And God says, I will dwell among my people by the ark. So how did the ark, the next question, that's why it's important, okay? It's incredibly important. You might ask, well, how did the ark end up here? Why does David have to go all the way to this house of Amminadab to get the ark? And for that answer, you have to go back and read 1 Samuel 4 through 6. And here's the basic summary, okay? So track with me. Here's the summary. The Israelites, back in 1 Samuel 4, this is back even before Saul's day, or right in the time of Saul, the Israelites were fighting the Philistines, and they had been losing so they decide to take the ark to the front lines of the battle to rally the troops, much like Joshua and Moses had done during the exodus and conquest. So they're ultimately treating God's presence like a good luck charm. It's like a talisman or something. And God wouldn't have it. God wouldn't have it. And so, that's not too far, by the way, of the lesson of chapter 6, that God will be revered and not treated casually or flippantly by worshipers. So what Israel does is Israel rejoices with the ark and they go to war. 1 Samuel 4 through 6. But the Philistines win. And they kill 30,000 Israelites. You notice how many does David take with him here? 30,000. David is doing, he's trying to undo what has been done back in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. So the Philistines capture the ark, and it is famously written in 1 Samuel 4, when they capture the ark, this is what is said in all of Israel, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Israel is devastated. The very presence and glory of God is gone. But something else happens. Something else happens. The Philistines place the ark in the temple of their god Dagon, where there's this large statue of Dagon, and God breaks out against Dagon and destroys the statue, and then God breaks out against the Philistines and inflicts them with a plague of tumors. Like all the people break out in tumors, and they, they freak out, and they're like, we got to get rid of this thing, it's going to kill us. It's going to kill us. And so they ultimately send the ark on its way on a cart, pulled by oxen. They basically just load this cart with the ark and a bunch of 
uh, golden mice that are covered in tumors and a bunch of offerings, and they hit the, they hit the oxen on the butt, and they say, go wherever you want. And, and the ark travels back to Israel, and it ultimately ends up here at the house of Abinadab. And that leads us. So, that, that's how, by the way, the, the Philistines are terrified. They send the ark on its way. It ends up in Israel. So David gathers, gathers 30,000 men, reminiscent of the day that the ark was lost, and goes to bring it back to his new capital in Jerusalem. And this leads to an incredible celebration of joy. Look there at verse 5. It says, and David, this, this is why it's so historically important, it says, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Could you imagine this scene of worship? It is incredible. It is historical. It's an historically incredible day because God's presence will now be among his people again. Just as Israel was devastated when the glory of God um, departed at the loss of the ark, there's now unmitigated worship and joy at the presence of God returning to his people through the ark with David, their new king, leading the procession. This shows us this incredible need here. David longs for God's presence among his people. Now, here's the application and why this is so important. Hear me. Tune in your ears. This is why this is important. David and Israel, for the first five chapters of, first, of 2 Samuel, they have been moving from one crisis to the next. From one conflict to the next conflict. From one matter of treason or political controversy to the next. From one battle with the Philistines to the next. Do you see what's happening here in verse six, in chapter 6? David knows... That God's people cannot be sustained by unending crises. Let me say that again. God's people cannot be sustained by unending crises. We must be sustained by God's presence among us. It's not that there aren't battles out in the world that must be faced. But those can never take the place of God's presence. We must be sustained by worship. The American church must be very careful of this. Now here's where I might step on toes. We must be very careful of this. Why? It's always easier. It's always easier to get worked up or offended over whatever the next crises may be out in the world. And just go from being offended by one thing to the next to the next and fight unending culture wars. That's exactly what the devil wants. For us to not worry about the presence of God among us, the sanctifying, empowering presence of God among us, but for us to just fight every battle and for us to only be worried about the Philistines at the gates. But by doing that, we lose focus on what really matters. As Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? So the answer is to remember who is among us. Not who's out there. 
Who is among us? It is God among us. That's why David goes to find the ark. He longs for the presence of God among his people. So that's what this is all about. The need of God's presence among his people. Again, which brings us to the second point. The danger of God's presence. David does not know that which he is asking. The danger of God's presence. Look at now verses 6 through 10. Our text takes a dark turn. There was joy and celebration and music and dancing and rejoicing and death. And death. In the middle of this great revival and the great worship service, God strikes down what is most likely one of the priests, the son of Abinadab, Uzzah. This huge throng of people have just witnessed the danger of God's presence. Uzzah simply seeks to steady the cart, and God breaks out against him. Now this story, it's stories like this that stop us in our tracks and make us come face to face with the God of the Bible. Not the God of our imagination or the God of, what we, the God of, what, of how we would like God to be, but the God of the Bible. And there are two incredibly important things that we must remember when we come to this passage. God breaks out against us. Here, here are two things. You can write these down. Number one, I want you to think about the grace of God's word. The grace of God's word. What do I mean by that? If you were to read the rest of your Old Testament, you will find that God had given very specific instructions to Moses regarding the ark. Here they are. Four instructions. Four instructions regarding the ark. Number one, the ark had to be covered with layers of curtains or blankets. That's Numbers 4, 5. So that it could not be looked upon. This is what it says. They shall not go in to look at the holy things for a moment lest they die. It had to be covered. Number two. It, ha- it was only to be carried by the priests. Only priests could carry the ark. Number three, it had to be carried by poles put through the rings on the side of the ark. It was not to be carried on a cart. This means it could not be transported by oxen or cart. And number four, the ark could not be touched. It says in Numbers 4.15, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. That is the grace of God's word. And if you were to go back to 1 Samuel 6, 1 Samuel 6, which David had to have been aware aware of, you would read this about how the ark came to be at this particular house. It says there, listen to this, how the ark ended up at the house of Amenadab. I left this part out on purpose because it fits in the story better right here. If you were to go read 1 Samuel 6, it says this, and God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of God, he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of God. Come and take it up to you. We don't want it. My point here 
is that God kept his word. God kept his word. It was God's grace to his people for their good and blessing. God's word to his people is for their good, protection, and blessing. At the end of all things, at the end of all things, the entire cosmos will see that God only and always honors his word. This brings us to the second critical critical truth. Not only the grace of God's word, but the glory of God's holiness. The glory of God's holiness. Did you hear the question that they asked? Who can stand before this holy God? R.C. Sproul writes about this in his famous book, The Holiness of God. And he, he says this. This is his commentary on Uzzah. He says, consider now the story of Uzzah. The Ark of the Covenant was being carried in a cart. This was not the way it was designed to be carried. It should have been on the shoulders of priests. When one of the oxen stumbled, the ark looked like it was going to fall. Uzzah keeps it from tipping in the mud. God's reaction was not, thank you, Uzzah. No, he killed, God. He killed Uzzah instantly. Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark. Listen to this. This is, this is incredible. He says, Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark. But mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of a human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. God said no. It's the holiness of God. This is the issue. This is the issue. You cannot ignore the similar language here of God breaking out against the men of Beth Shemesh where he killed 70 of them and how God breaks out against the Philistines in chapter 5 when David goes to battle with them and now God breaks out against Uzzah. David named the place where God broke out against the Philistines Baal Perazim, remember? Smashville. David was excited. God broke out against my enemies. And now David names this place Perez Uzzah. In the one instance, God had broken out against his enemies, and now he's broken out against his friend. And what's David's response to this? David was angry that the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and David was afraid of the Lord on that day. This story, by the way, is one of the reasons I trust the biblical authors. You don't make up stories like this if you want to market your God to the masses. Hey, you should follow our God. He'll strike you down at any moment. That's why I trust the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat it. This God is holy. He is not to be trifled with. God is un... This God here is uncontrollable. And He will not only break out against His enemies like the Philistines, He will break out against a guy just trying to steady a cart. This God is unpredictable and unsafe. He is not tame. He cannot be controlled or coerced or manipulated. He is not accountable to us. He is not answerable to us. He owes us no explanations. He is terrifying. He is simply, in a word, God. That is who He is. 
Not God in our image or in our likeness. He is holy, altogether separate and unique. And this is why the men of, the men of Beth Shemesh asked the question, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? David basically asked the same question in verse 9. How can the ark come to me? Like the men of Beth Shemesh, get this away from me. David, it's not coming to me. Let's send this away. So what does David do? David's a practical guy. You should, have, you should have learned this so far in our study of David. He's, he's a practical guy. What does David do? He decides that this God is too dangerous to bring back to Jerusalem. So he sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. It says it twice. To the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now for you Bible scholars out there, Gittite means he's from Gath. You know who else is from Gath? Goliath. This is the hometown of Goliath. David sends it to Obed-Edom, right? Basically, this is what David is saying. David might be thinking something like this. Listen, if God wants to kill people, let's send him back to the Philistines and let him have his way with those guys. It's a little humorous, right? I'm going to send it back to Goliath's hometown let God take care of them. I don't have to fight them. Just send them the ark. That's what I'm going to do. And that brings us, though, to my final point. We've seen the need of God's presence, the danger of God's presence, but look at this. The blessing of God's presence. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Is this how you expected this story to end? And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Huh. This verse should blow your mind. All of our sensibilities are shattered when Uzzah is struck down, though he absolutely deserved it. And now that we read that this same God blesses the house of a Philistine by his presence. Huh. This is the freedom of God to do as he pleases. God will do as he pleases. God's presence is meant to be a blessing to his people, but it is also a danger. This is why David writes in Psalm 211, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That is two, that seems to be two opposite-ended things that David marries together because they're married together in this text. We are, to we are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There should be rightful fear and rightful rejoicing in the presence of God. And let me read to you from Moses in Exodus 33 because this is, this is exactly the point of Exodus 33 where Moses pleads for God's presence. He pleads for it because he knows God's he knows God's presence is dangerous as God has broken out against the Israelites in the wilderness. But he also knows that it is more dangerous to live apart from God's presence. God's presence is dangerous, but it's more dangerous to live apart from him. This is what he says. He says, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, this is Moses pleading with God. He says, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And you said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to them, so he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. So what makes Israel separate from all other people? Is it because they're better? No. Is it because they're more righteous? No. Is it because they don't sin? No. 
It's because God chooses to put his presence among them. And he said to Mo- and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I will know and you know my name. And Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And listen to this. This is where God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And this is what God says is his glory. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That's what God is doing to Obed-Edom. I'm going to show mercy to whomever I want to show mercy. He's a Philistine. He doesn't deserve it. I'm going to be gracious to him. Here's the conclusion. It is this very point where I want to conclude. God is holy and God is gracious. And his grace and his presence flow to us today through Christ Jesus. It is no longer mediated through a prophet like Moses or through a symbol like the ark, but through his very presence among us in Jesus Christ our Lord. As John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is only through Jesus that we have our sins forgiven and our defilement taken away so that we can approach the throne of grace and dwell in God's presence without being consumed by God's holiness. Our God is a consuming fire and He will consume every sin in His presence, which is why you need Jesus. Jesus alone can take hold of the holiness of God and sinful men and he can bring them together and reconcile them because he has bore the holy wrath of God in our place, in our stead. And that is what the gospel means. Those of us who love the gospel cannot take the gentleness of Christ and confuse it for weakness. He is still the Almighty the Holy One, the consuming fire. And intimacy with God does not mean treating God casually. We are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus, you will stand one day before this holy God. And like Uzzah, you are more defiled than you think you are. And this is why you need Jesus. And this is why for Christians... There is this balancing of God is holy and Jesus is merciful and we must come to Christ by repentance and faith. Not treating sin flippantly, not treating worship flippantly, but saying, Jesus, we need you and we know we need you because you are holy. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and then we're going to move towards communion. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come to him. Find mercy and grace. And if you are a Christian who is treating God flippantly, then take this as a lesson. God is holy, and you need Jesus. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together as we we continue in worship. And Father, we ask that as we move towards communion, you would meet with your people now. For Jesus' sake, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.